0: Scripture Day one hundred and nine. Uh, today we're going to be looking at Deuteronomy chapter thirty, verse eleven through thirty-one, verse twenty-nine, as well as Psalm forty-eight and Luke 19, 11 through forty-four. Okay, the law is uh, getting wrapped up here now. Um, these are kind of the, the final words um, as as the law is finished and then given to the priest. We see that today. So we begin in uh, chapter 30 verse 11 uh with something that paul actually quotes in the book of romans making his own point there but what he says here is uh, this for this commandment that i command you today is not too hard for you neither is it far off um so the, the idea is that that the law is not this uh is not this impossible thing to keep that um that you know you have you have an excuse right that this is how can how can we possibly do this or anything? And that is kind of the consistent way in which we see the law viewed throughout Scripture, that the problem, when we talk about the law and humans' relationship to it, the problem with this relationship is not the law of God. The problem is the sinful heart of man. The problem is the fact that, that sin is in us. And so when we look at the universal sinfulness of humankind, um... The, the, the issue is not that it is impossible to live a life that is pleasing to God. The issue is that that we are culpable for our sin. And um, so it's important to keep that in mind when we, when we think of this, when we think of like what the law can and cannot do. The law cannot save us. The law cannot make us righteous before God. No one is righteous because, uh, by, by keeping the law. But it's not because God has given us these commands that are impossible. The problem is that we, in our sinful hearts, have turned away from Him. Um, and I think it's important to keep that distinction. Very important to keep that distinction when we're thinking about things such as, uh, such as grace and forgiveness and and all of that. That that we are the ones who are responsible for the fracturing of this relationship. So I set before you today, uh, Moses says, death and evil life, and good, which are you going to choose? Uh, if you obey, and we've heard a lot of language like this in Deuteronomy, right? Uh, if you if you obey, then you will live and multiply, and Yahweh, your God, will bless you in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. Um, but if your heart turns away and you will not hear and are drawn away to worship f- false gods, and then you have kind of the, the I think, the distinctive thing about today's reading, um, heaven and earth I call a witness against you. So the idea of a witness against the people, uh, be, meaning that that there's a there's more than a hint in this morning's passage um, that <clears throat> that God knows and uh, Moses knows as well that these people, um, even though they are distinct from their parents' generation, um, are going to to turn away, and and even if it's not going to be a massive problem during this generation and the generations to come, it definitely will be, um, so, so there's there, in, in something of a courtroom setting, something of a legal forensic setting, um, various things are being called in this morning's passage to witness against them, uh, therefore choose life, okay, so right, life and death, good and evil, choose life. Moses uh, Moses is 120 years old. We learn at this time he's he's old and he's advanced in years, and it's time for him to depart. Um, as with a lot of other numbers in the Old Testament, we do uh, we it is legitimate to wonder: is this a literal number or is this a good round number that is used to denote a full life? Um, so that's kind of an open question, and people go back on, and forth on that. Um, he wants to, and he wants to tell this generation now who has to go into the land and take the land that Yahweh will indeed go before you. He will fight for you. You need to remain faithful to him. Um, Joshua will go at your head. He will be your leader. And so be strong and courageous. And this charge, of course, is repeated to Joshua in the beginning of his book, Joshua 1.6. Um, Do not fear or be in dread of the people, uh, for it is Yahweh your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Um, this is a, a verse that is quoted in Hebrews 13.5 in a, a more popular context in terms of like uh, quotes that Christians tend to be familiar with, but that's where they, they get this from. And so Joshua is summoned in the sight of all Israel, again, with the charge, be strong and courageous, because you're going to go with this with people into the land. Um, the Lord Yahweh, he, it is he who goes with you, um. Uh, he goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Uh, then Moses is instructed to write um, a song. Okay, which we'll we'll look at tomorrow. Which will become known as the Song of Moses. And this song also is to be a witness against them. So we saw heaven and earth, and now the song is a witness against them. So that's the second witness here. That uh, when they when they are in the land and they've eaten and grown fat that they'll forget the one who gave it to them. So, right, life has become easy for them. There, there's no challenge, which, of course, is, um, I think we can all attest to that in our own lives, right, that that um, sometimes when we, or often, um, it's when things are easy that we tend to forget the Lord. It's when things are tough that we we turn to Him, that we, we understand our dependence on Him. Uh, but prosperity can have a way of softening people, a way of making... Um, uh, people um, just too complacent in their walk with God and in their diligence in in loving him and in serving him and so that's the fear here that they will turn and um, um, and but this song that will stick in the memory of the people of Israel it will live unforgotten among them and so as this is happening um, there there will be a witness that there is that of, of being the meaning, the difference between the ideals that are set forth and were set forth in the law, and what their lives have actually become in having in having turned away from the Lord. Um, <clears throat> to Joshua, there is a, a a commissioning directly from Yahweh then in verse twenty-three, and notice the language, and and we have seen this before um, in in today, so uh, you see this also. Um, in verse six, uh, which I just read of chapter thirty-one, but here in verse twenty-three, um, God is encouraging him, and notice what He says: "I will be with you." This uh, is uh, seems to be intentionally hearkening back to Exodus three, verse twelve, when Moses was commissioned to lead the people. Do you remember what happened there? Is Moses was very much doubting his ability to go before Pharaoh, and was like, "Who am I that I should do this?" and the Lord's response was, I will be with you. And uh, so in, in many ways, Joshua is Moses's full successor here. Um, and uh, especially in the fact that the Lord's presence is with him to do the task that he is calling him to do. Um, uh, then Moses, it says, finished writing the words of this law in the book to the very end, um, Deuteronomy 31, 24. Um, so I think, Just as a bit of an aside here, it is very important for us to affirm uh, that Moses indeed wrote the parts that are ascribed to him in Deuteronomy. I know there are sometimes questions as to who exactly wrote the Pentateuch, and whether Moses was the writer of it or not is very controversial, of course with skeptical scholars giving uh, much more um, uh, different accounts as to how the law came into being. Um, But as people who believe the Bible, I think it's important to affirm the parts that he is said to have written. There are other parts that are a little, little up in the air, but clearly major parts of the law of Moses, and sometimes it is difficult, like in this verse, to know exactly what, quote, this law refers to. Um, but I say that the things that the Bible tells us that he wrote, those are the things that's important for believers to affirm. Um, and as to the debate, as to the the evidence for for who wrote what, um, that kind of rages back and forth. That's not really the, the purpose of this this podcast. I don't know how many people are interested in that those questions. But those are things that have really befuddled Old Testament scholars for a long time. And um, I will just say that in my experience in reading, it's not as if uh, the arguments are ultra strong against um, Moses authoring the parts of the Bible that he said to have authored. So I am comfortable with affirming that, but at the same time, also not making assumptions where things that Moses is not said to have written, um, I don't think it's as important to, you know, hold on and say, Moses must have, must have written these things. But here we have a clear affirmation that Moses is writing um, this law. And again, what this law exactly refers to, we can't be that certain. Um, there, um, But at least, you know, it's probably uh, the thing that the thing that's uh, uh, that's being referred to here. I think is most likely to be the the legislation in Deuteronomy that we've seen, um, as opposed to say the entire Torah, the entire Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Um, there's no indication in the Old Testament that that's how the word Torah is used to refer to that five collection, that that collection of five books. Um, but um it's also possible that the legislation does include the other legal portions that had been given um uh you know throughout throughout the Pentateuch uh so but at any rate he finishes writing the words and then is instructed to give the book to the priests who are to place it beside the ark of the covenant of course in the holy of holies that it may be there for a witness against you as well so now we have three witnesses and um Uh, I I don't think it's unreasonable to think back to a passage like uh, Deuteronomy 17.6, where in the court of law it is required, as you probably recall, I think we've talked about this several times, that nobody is to be put to death on the testimony of only one witness, but you are to have two and uh, preferably three witnesses who are able to testify as to someone's guilt with something that severe and with consequences so dire. And um, of course, we've seen what the curses of the transgression of the law or continual transgression of the law, the curses that will be brought certainly involves uh, death, certainly involves, I mean, right, like the, even today, I, I set before you life and death. Um, and so here we have three witnesses witnessing against the people in the future years and when they're going to be uh, rebelling against the Lord. Um, and so the, the, the priests are instructed then to assemble the elders, the officers of Israel, um, that, um, that I may speak to them, uh, for I know that you will act corruptly in the days to come, uh, evil will befall you because you will do evil. And that's where, uh, this is left, um, Oh, the other thing that I just wanted to mention that uh, that, that, that is established um, uh, in verses 11-12, so kind of backing up a little bit here, is uh, the law is indeed given to the priests, right? Um, and the uh, the 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 priests are every seventh year at the Feast of Booths are to read the entire law before all Israel. So to keep the, the, the memory of what the Lord requires of them alive. That's not to say this is the only exposure that the people should have to the law. They've also got Levites, they've got priests, right? Not everybody is literate. It's not like everybody has a copy of it and just reads it in their quiet time. Um, but the law is is to be uh, put place before the people. And here you have an assembly that's envisioned. Again, this is not the only time they would have heard the law, but with pretty much everyone in the land, uh, sojourners, children, um, husbands, wives, everyone is to go uh, during the Feast of Booths, every seven years, and hear the, the the law in its entirety. Okay, that's it for Deuteronomy today. Let's take a look at Psalm 48. This once again is another one of these psalms of Korah, and this is a psalm that celebrates Zion, which of course is another name in Scripture that is given to um, which is given to Jerusalem. So this is the the city of God, and um, Often Zion is a term that is given uh, in, in celebratory contexts or in contexts that speak of the prophetic kind of idealized hope of what the the city of God is to be and here this psalm kind of um, uh, exemplifies that. so begins with, uh, with with great is Yahweh, greatly to pr- be praised in the city of our God His holy mountain and Jerusalem is on him, is on a is elevated right as, as any good defensible city is beautiful in elevation is the joy of all the earth mount zion in the far north now that's a weird thing to say because jerusalem if you look at a map is not by any stretch of the imagination in the north one might say well if we're only talking about the southern kingdom of judah uh, that their territory is is obviously southern so we're talking about in this in the north of judah it's probably more than that. We're told this is in the far north, um, yarkete Zafon, the the far reaches of the north. Um, so how do we how do we square this? Well, probably what's going on here is when you look at um, the mythology that surrounded the gods of of Canaan, frankly. So um, this would be um, uh, Baal, and uh, in particular the god El. Um, those gods were traditionally celebrated and especially El as living on a mountain called Mount Zaphon and Zaphon is the Hebrew word for north um and so this is not and not just Hebrew that's that's also um the 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 name of his abode in the Ugaritic texts and so probably what's happening here is that the the imagery that is typically pers- um, ascribed to the head of the Canaanite pantheon is ascribed to Yahweh, uh, this reigning in this um, in this quasi-mythological mountain in the north. Okay, so this is this is imagery here. Describing the Lord's reign, that He's the one who rules. He's the one you've heard of of the God of the you know the head of the gods who reigns on the mountain in the far north. Well, I've got news for you. It is Yahweh. That's probably what's going on here. Um, but and 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 this mountain then is replaced with Zion, um, the city of the great king. Uh, within her citadels God has made himself known as a fortress. And uh, of course there it's a it's it's like well, who is the king who reigns in Jerusalem? And uh, certainly one might say that this could simply refer to the, the king, the earthly king of Jerusalem. However, note that everything in that stanza is praising God. Uh, so is is this indeed claiming that that the Lord is the one who is who is the king? reigning on his throne in Mount Zion uh, yes it certainly appears to be the case and then um, you know so this the, the the psalm then proceeds the kings uh, of the earth are all coming together um, in, in panic and trembling before him um, and so this the, the this idea of, of um, the Lord kind of subduing his enemies um, and then God's people, uh, issue in meditation, in verse 9 and following, we have thought on your chesed, your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. So there they are back, in not only in Jerusalem, but in the center of Jerusalem, in, in the temple, the place where God dwells. As your name, O God, uh, so your praises reaches to the end of the earth. So not only does your reputation precede you uh, throughout all nations, but... Um, but, but your praise it's not that, that there's actually um, uh, right it's, it's not just like we know God and uh, and 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 we are um, we are fearful of him we're trembling but we're praising him uh, we, your praise reaches throughout all the earth and again this is the I- idealized hope uh, for what will one day happen in Christ of course um, as we know but here we have this this hope being expressed um, and and You know, that certainly is a trajectory throughout Scripture, that how is this going to be accomplished? Um, So here you have this celebration, and, and throughout Israel's years, it's hard to see how this was really fulfilled. But we do see it fulfilled, of course, in Christ. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. And then, um, and then finally, we're instructed, let's take a tour, okay, your tour guide, walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels, that you may tell the next generation, that's very Deuteronomy of you, isn't it, that this is God, our God forever and ever, he will guide us forever. Okay, that's um, Psalm 48. Now let's go to our passage in Luke today, which is mainly occupied by a parable. Uh, So that's going to be Luke 19, beginning in verse 11. And uh, this is the parable of the ten minas, which uh, definitely is very similar to the parable of the talents that we've read about before, but it is definitely distinct as well. So, um, so very similar uh, themes here, but so the context for the telling of this parable we're told is number one because they're near Jerusalem, and number two because they suppose that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So they have the disciples have this um, this hope that. That uh, that that is very characteristic of the Jewish people of their day. That the um, the kingdom of God, right? All right, Jesus is going to be going. He's going into Jerusalem. He is the Messiah. He is the King. He is going to take up his reign, and the kingdom of God is it's it's smooth sailing from here on out. And so, because they're coming near Jerusalem, and because this is their hope, Jesus tells them this parable just to make it um, help them to understand what actually is going on. And so he talks about a nobleman who went to a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and return. In this parable, this likely represents Jesus, of course, who will um, not physically be with them. Right? He, he he is going to be at the right hand of the Father, uh, as we're told elsewhere in Scripture, until all of his enemies are, are subjected under his feet and his rule is fully established, then he will return. In the meantime, however, he leaves his servants, um, in charge. And he gives each of them 10 minas. A mina is about three months wages for um, a worker. This is a, a considerable sum and uh, tells them to engage in business, which similar to the parable of the talents is this is what God entrusts, uh, Jesus entrusts us with. Like, what are we doing while he's in the far country, uh, receiving his kingdom? Okay. Um, this is this is and and by the way, this receiving of the kingdom it's part and parcel with this already not yet theology that we have in the in the New Testament. I'm not sure I've discussed this yet, but that there are aspects of the kingdom that are already inaugurated in Christ, and certainly after his his death, burial, and resurrection. Um, you know, uh, but there's then there's there's also a future aspect of it. Uh, there's a not yet aspect, something that is to come, and this is one of those other great tensions of Scripture that that both of these things need to be affirmed, that there's parts of the kingdom of God that are already here, and there are parts that are not yet. And uh, we need to be able to affirm both of those until he comes. Um, but yeah, so... Uh, and then on the other hand, there's these citizens, and the citizens in the parable, it's pretty evident, especially by the time you reach the end, that these are distinct from the servants. These are not the same individuals, but those who are called citizens here um, don't want him reigning over them and tries to try to kind of like organize something of a coup against him. Uh, and these individuals would not represent um, the, you know, Jesus's followers. These are those who, who don't want anything to, don't want to have anything to do with Jesus's rule. So you've got two kinds of people, essentially, who are uh, present, uh, who are represented in the parable during the time period when the nobleman is going to receive his kingdom. Um, When he comes back, he goes to the servants, and the first one, who has ten minas, and it doesn't go through all of the servants, there's ten of them, right? But he goes through three of them. And the first one... uh, has ten minas, and he's done well. He's earned ten minas more, and um, and he is given ten cities. This is the this is um, in line with Jesus's teaching. Um, to, to him who has more, will be given. Um, he who is faithful over little will be will be entrusted over much. And so you do have uh, the idea of rewards um, being given in accordance with with. Um, how we have done with what the Lord has given to us and um, the, it's interesting you see the, they're given cities um, so the first of all the, the reward far outstrips right what what they've actually done right so Amina you're not buying a city with Amina. Um, so the, the reward far outstrips that so there, there's the thing right that that the rewards are to be construed as as gracious. Okay, that's, it's not as if you've actually earned a city, um, and it's un, it's a little unclear here. So you know uh, what um, uh, what we're to make of this this quote unquote cities. There are certainly certainly like in the book of Revelation, and um, also you know Paul will talk about this that those who are in Christ will reign with Him. So there is a reigning aspect of being in Christ. Um, whether or not that's implied by this parable is a little up for question. Like, do the cities just represent uh, rewards and, and we're, we're not to overthink it by, by, um, by kind of, you know, using this as a proof text for this idea of us reigning with Christ, uh, but it is possible. Um, so it's, it's a little unclear as to like what the cities correspond to in quote unquote real life. Um, same with the one who um, earned five minas, he's given five cities, but the one who really doesn't do much, he just, he, he hasn't earned any, he, similar to the guy in the Parable of the Talent who buried the thing in the field, um, he hasn't done anything um, for the, really for the kingdom um, uh, to, to write home about. He's simply hid the mina in a handkerchief because he was afraid of the kind of guy that the master was, um, and... Um, and his is to be taken away. What he has is to be taken away. Um, but it does not appear that this one, unlike in the parable of the talents, where the one who does nothing with what he is given um, is—he's—he's uh, he's the object of actual judgment of of um, being destroyed, right? Being thrown outside um, into utter darkness, right? That in the parable of the talent, that guy does not seem to. Um, to to be a uh to be saved i suppose was right to 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 be um uh, to actually belong to the master this is, it seems to be an indication that this is somebody who is unregenerate who does not know the lord um, at all uh, which suggest whereas here um, that's not the case right he's simply given to the his stuff is simply given to the one who has uh, 10 minas whereas then in verse 26 it turns um, or sorry, in verse 27, it turns to the enemies um, for judgment, uh, suggesting that the minas and the talents in those, you know in these two parables do not represent the same thing, whereas the talents are the things that are, I suppose we could say, basic to salvation. Here we have um, more, perhaps we could talk about, like gifts, resources, things like that seems to indicate. Um, so yeah, but then he turns to to the enemies who didn't want him to reign, and it says, "Bring them here and slaughter them before me." So, another one of these metaphors for God's judgment um, for those who who reject Jesus's reign. So then, they are going into the villages, um, just as we've seen in the other synoptics. Jesus instructs a number of his disciples to go before him and to procure a colt for him to ride on. Um, notice that in the synoptic gospels, I don't think I've mentioned this before. In all of them. When they encounter the guy who owns the cult or the donkey, you know, however we're putting these together, um, he's asked, like, why why are you untying why are you untying this animal? Where are you taking my my colt? And they say the master has need of it. And the guy's like, Okay, fine. Um, this possibly and probably indicates that Jesus has been to Jerusalem before and has followers already in this vicinity. That certainly is what we see in the Gospel of John, when because John, John records several trips to Jerusalem, this one being the last one, of course, um, with uh, numbers of people who are already in and around Jerusalem calling him a Lord who know him. You think, for example, of Martha and Mary and Lazarus um, think also of Simon the leper in whose house, um, Mary of Bethany, St. Mary anoints the Lord. Um, so it's, it's, it seems probable that the, the, the person who contributes the donkey as well as the person who contributes the upper room are indeed disciples of Jesus who, who are in, in and around Jerusalem. So, um, so at any rate, they, they, and and the they is more than just the 12, right? It talks about the whole multitude of his disciples. So remember, Jesus has accumulated quite a few people. People are in Jerusalem for the Passover feast and around Jerusalem. So of those, all those whom, whom Jesus has made followers out of now are, are around him. They're spreading their cloaks on the road and they're, 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 they're praising him with Psalm 118, um, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of of the Lord, right? He's the king. Um, We've seen this theme throughout. Um, Luke, I don't think I need to belabor it here. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And the Pharisees, of course, tell tell Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. You hear what they're saying about you. And he tells them, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. But then he comes to Jerusalem and um, is weeping um, over... Um, those citizens, to use the language of the parable, right, who wanted nothing to do, who want nothing to do with him reigning over them, would that you even you had known on this day the things that make for peace. So he's actually there's a sat, profound sadness here in him reaching uh, Zion, the city of God, celebrated in Psalm 48. Right? Is this that Zion, or is there something to come? Okay, because here the king comes, the king who reigns there, as we saw in Psalm 48. Right? He comes and he finds them um, in a pitiful state. Um, this is not the Zion of Psalm 48, right. The days will come when you, uh, upon you, when your enemies, will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. Of course, this does eventually happen in the uh, destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD at the hands of the Romans, and they will tear you down to the ground you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Okay, that's it for today. As always, I thank you for for being with me, and I love going through scripture with you. So until tomorrow, keep reading, take care, bye-bye.